Section 37 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7, by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Trial and Execution of Jeanne d'Arc. A.D. 1431, Jules Michelet. After her victory at Orléans in 1429, Jeanne d'Arc knelt before the French king in the Cathedral of Reims and shed tears of joy. She felt that she had fulfilled her mission and she desired to return to her home at Domremy. But King Charles VII persuaded her to remain with the army. She still heard her heavenly voices but she now no longer thought herself the appointed minister of heaven to lead her countrymen to certain victory. She expected but one year more of life, but she still bravely faced the future with its perils. The maid took part in the capture of Laon, Soissons, Compiègne, and other places, and in the attack on Paris in September 1429, which she prematurely urged, was severely wounded, in a sally from Compiègne, where she was besieged by Burgundians, she was taken prisoner on May 24, 1430, and held until November, when, for a large payment in money, she was surrendered to the English, who took her to Rouen, their real capital in France. On January 3, 1431, by order of King Henry VI of England, Jeanne was placed in the hands of Peter Cauchon, Bishop of Beauvais, who had already moved to have her delivered up to the Inquisition of France, as demanded by the University of Paris. The bishop proceeded to form at Rouen a court of justice for her trial, and on February 21st the maid was brought before her judges, Norman priests and doctors of Paris, in the chapel of Rouen Castle. The trial lasted until May 30th, forty sittings being held some of them in Jeanne's prison, where for a time she was kept in an iron cage. Commanded to take an oath to tell the truth about everything as to which she should be questioned, she replied, Perchance you may ask me things I would not tell you. I do not like to take an oath to tell the truth save as to matters which concern the faith. She fearlessly tried to guard against violation of what she considered her right to be silent. In this odious and shameful trial, says Guizot, the judge's prejudiced servility and scientific subtlety were employed for three months to wear out the courage or overreach the understanding of a young girl of nineteen who made no defense beyond holding her tongue or appealing to God, who had dictated to her that which she had done. Formal accusation was made under twelve heads or articles based on the preliminary examination and the trial proceeded to its merciless end. In Passion Week, Jeanne d'Arc fell sick. Her temptation began, no doubt, on Palm Sunday. A country girl, born on the skirts of a forest, and having ever lived in the open air of heaven, she was compelled to pass this fine Palm Sunday in the depths of a dungeon. The grand succor which the church invokes came not for her, the doors did not open.
They were opened on the Tuesday, but it was to lead the accused to the great hall of the castle before her judges. They read to her the articles which had been founded on her answers, and the bishop previously represented to her that these doctors were all churchmen, clerks, and well-read in the law, divine and human, that they were all tender and pitiful and desired to proceed mildly, seeking neither vengeance nor corporal punishment, but solely wishing to enlighten her and put her in the way of truth and of salvation, and that, as she was not sufficiently informed in such high matters, the bishop and the inquisitor offered her the choice of one or more of the assessors to act as her counsel. The accused, in presence of this assembly, in which she did not descry a single friendly face, mildly answered, For what you admonish me as to my good and concerning our faith, I thank you. As to the counsel you offer me, I have no intention to forsake the counsel of our Lord. The first article touched on the capital point, submission. She replied, Well do I believe that our Holy Father, the bishops, and others of the church are to guard the Christian faith and punish those who are found wanting. As to my deeds, I submit myself only to the church in heaven, to God and the Virgin, to the sainted men and women in paradise. I have not been found wanting in regard to the Christian faith, and trust I never shall be. And shortly afterwards, I would rather die than recall what I have done by our Lord's command. What illustrates the time, the uninformed mind of these doctors, and their blind attachment to the letter without regard to the spirit, is that no point seemed graver to them than the sin of having assumed male attire. They represented to her that, according to the canons, those who thus change the habit of their sex are abominable in the sight of God. At first, she would not give a direct answer, and begged for a respite till the next day. But her judges insisted on her discarding the dress. She replied that she was not empowered to say when she could quit it. But if you should be deprived of the privilege of hearing Mass? Well, our Lord can grant me to hear it without you. Will you put on a woman's dress in order to receive your Savior at Easter? No. I cannot quit this dress. It matters not to me in what dress I receive my Savior. After this, she seems shaken, asks to at least be allowed to hear Mass, adding, I won't say, but if you were to give me a gown such as the daughters of the burghers wear, a very long gown. It is clear she shrank through modesty from explaining herself. The poor girl durst not explain her position in prison or the constant danger she was in. The truth is that three soldiers slept in her room, three of the brigand ruffians called houspilleurs, that she was chained to a beam by a large iron chain, almost wholly at their mercy. The man's dress they wished to compel her to discontinue was all her safeguard. What are we to think of the imbecility of the judge or of his horrible connivance? Besides being kept under the eyes of these wretches and exposed to their insults and mockery, she was subjected to a spile from without. Winchester, the Inquisitor, and Cauchon had each a key to the tower and watched her hourly through a hole in the wall. Each stone of this infernal dungeon had eyes. 
Her only consolation was that she was at first allowed interviews with a priest who told her that he was a prisoner and attached to Charles VII's cause. Loiselleur, so he was named, was a tool of the English. He had won Jeanne's confidence, who used to confess herself to him, and at such times her confessions were taken down by notaries concealed on purpose to overhear her. It is said that Loiselleur encouraged her to hold out in order to ensure her destruction. The deplorable state of the prisoner's health was aggravated by her being deprived of the consolations of religion during Passion Week. On the Thursday, the sacrament was withheld from her. On that selfsame day on which Christ is universal host, on which he invites the poor and all those who suffer, she seemed to be forgotten. On Good Friday, that day of deep silence on which we all hear no other sound than the beating of one's own heart, it seems as if the hearts of the judges smote them, and that some feeling of humanity and of religion had been awakened in their aged scholastic souls. At least it is certain that, whereas thirty-five of them took their seats on Wednesday, no more than nine were present at the examination on Saturday. The rest, no doubt, alleged the devotions of the day as their excuse. On the contrary, her courage had revived. Likening her own sufferings to those of Christ, the thought had roused her from her despondency. She agreed to defer to the church militant, provided it command nothing impossible. Do you think, then, that you are not subject to the church which is upon earth, to our Holy Father the Pope, to the cardinals, archbishops, bishops, and prelates? Yes, certainly our Lord is served. Do your voices forbid your submitting to the church militant? They do not forbid it, our Lord being served first. This firmness did not desert her once on the Saturday, but on the next day, the Sunday, Easter Sunday, what must her feelings have been? What must have passed in that poor heart when, the sounds of the universal holiday enlivening the city, Rouen's five hundred bells ringing out with their joyous peals on the air, and the whole Christian world coming to life with the Saviour, she remained with death. Could she who, with all her inner life of visions and revelations, had not the less docilely obeyed the commands of the Church? Could she who till now had believed herself in her simplicity a good girl, as she said, a girl altogether submissive to the Church? Could she without terror see the Church against her? After all, what, who was she to undertake to gainsay these prelates, these doctors? How dared she speak before so many able men, men who had studied? Was there not presumption and damnable pride in an ignorant girl's opposing herself to the learned, a poor, simple girl to men in authority? Undoubtedly fears of the kind agitated her mind. On the other hand, this opposition is not Jeanne's, but that of the saints and angels who have dictated her answers to her, and, up to this time, sustained her. Wherefore, alas, do they come no more in this pressing need of hers? Wherefore is the so long-promised deliverance delayed? Doubtless the prisoner had put these questions to herself over and over again. There was one means of escaping— this was, without expressly disavowing, to forbear affirming and to say, It seems to me. 
The lawyers thought it easy for her to pronounce these few simple words, but in her mind, to use so doubtful an expression was in reality equivalent to a denial. It was abjuring her beautiful dream of heavenly friendships, betraying her sweet sisters on high, better to die, and indeed the unfortunate, rejected by the visible, abandoned by the invisible, by the church, by the world, and by her own heart, was sinking, and the body was following the sinking soul. It so happened that on that very day she had eaten part of a fish which the charitable Bishop of Beauvais had sent her, and might have imagined herself poisoned. The bishop had an interest in her death. It would have put an end to this embarrassing trial, would have got the judge out of the scrape. But this was not what the English reckoned upon. The Earl of Warwick, in his alarm, said, The king would not have her by any means die a natural death. The king has bought her dear. She must die by justice and be burned. See and cure her. All attention, indeed, was paid her. She was visited and bled, but was none the better for it, remaining weak and nearly dying. Whether through fear that she should escape thus and die without retracting, or that her bodily weakness inspired hopes that her mind would be more easily dealt with, the judges made an attempt while she was lying in this state on April 18th. They visited her in her chamber and represented her that she would be in great danger if she did not reconsider and follow the advice of the church. It seems to me indeed, she said, seeing my sickness, that I am in great danger of death. If so, God's will be done. I should like to confess, receive my Savior, and be laid in holy ground. If you desire the sacraments of the church, you must do as good Catholics do and submit yourself to it. She made no reply, but on the judge's repeating his words, she said, If the body die in prison, I hope that you will lay it in holy ground. If you do not, I appeal to our Lord. Already in the course of these examinations, she had expressed one of her last wishes. Question. You say that you wear a man's dress by God's command, and yet, in case you die, you want a woman's shift? Answer. All I want is to have a long one. This touching answer was ample proof that in this extremity she was much less occupied with care about life than with the fears of modesty. The doctors preached to their patient for a long time, and he who had taken on himself the especial care of exhorting her, Master Nicholas Midi, a scholastic of Paris, closed the scene by saying bitterly to her, if you don't obey the church, you will be abandoned for a Saracen. I am a good Christian, she replied meekly. I was properly baptized and will die like a good Christian. The slowness of these proceedings drove the English wild with impatience. Winchester had hoped to bring the trial to an end before the campaign, to have forced a confession from the prisoner and have dishonored King Charles. This blow struck, he would recover Louviers secure Normandy and the Seine, and then repair to Basel to begin in another war, a theological war, to sit there as arbiter of Christendom and to make and unmake popes. At the very moment he had these high designs in view, he was compelled to cool his heels, 
waiting upon what it might please this girl to say. The unlucky Cauchon happened at this precise juncture to have offended the chapter of Rouen, from which he was soliciting a decision against the Poussette. He had allowed himself to be addressed beforehand as my lord the archbishop. Winchester determined to disregard the delays of these Normans and to refer at once to the great theological tribunal, the University of Paris. While waiting for the answer, new attempts were made to overcome the resistance of the accused, and both stratagem and terror were brought into play. In the course of a second admonition, on May 2nd, the preacher, Master Chatillon, proposed to her to submit the question of the truth of her visions to persons of her own party. She did not give in to the snare. As to this, she said, I depend on my judge, the king of heaven and earth. She did not say this time, as before, on God and the Pope. Well, the church will give you up, and you will be in danger of fire, both soul and body. You will not do what we tell you until you suffer body and soul. They did not stop at vague threats. On the third admonition, which took place in her chamber on May 11th, the executioner was sent for and she was told that the torture was ready, but the maneuver failed. On the contrary, it was found that she had resumed all and more than all her courage. Raised up after temptation, she seemed to have mounted a step nearer the source of grace. The angel Gabriel, she said, has appeared to strengthen me. It was he, my saints have assured me so. God has been ever my master in what I have done. The devil has never had power over me. Though you should tear off my limbs and pluck my soul from my body, I will say nothing else. The spirit was so visibly manifested in her that her last adversary, the preacher Chatillon, was touched and became her defender, declaring that a trial so conducted seemed to him null. Cauchon, beside himself with rage, compelled him to silence. The reply of the university arrived at last. The decision to which it came on the twelve articles was that this girl was wholly the devil's, was impious in regard to her parents, thirsted for Christian blood, etc. This was the opinion given by the faculty of theology. That of law was more moderate, declaring her to be deserving of punishment, but with two reservations. In case she persisted in her non-submission, if she were in her right senses. At the same time, the university wrote to the Pope, to the Cardinals, and to the King of England, lauding the Bishop of Beauvais, and setting forth, there seemed to it to have been great gravity observed, and a holy and just way of proceeding, which ought to be most satisfactory to all. Armed with this response, some of the assessors were for burning her without further delay which would have been sufficient satisfaction for the doctors, whose authority she rejected, but not for the English, who required a retraction that should defame King Charles. They had recourse to a new admonition and a new preacher, Master Pierre Maurice, which was attended by no better result. It was in vain that he dwelt upon the authority of the University of Paris, which is the light of all science. Though I should see the executioner and the fire there, she exclaimed, though I were in the fire, I could only say what I have said. 
It was by this time the 23rd of May, the day after Pentecost. Winchester could remain no longer at Rouen, and it behooved to make an end of the business. Therefore it was resolved to get up a great and terrible public scene, which should either terrify the recusant into submission, or at the least blind the people. Loiselleur, Chatillon, and Maurice were sent to visit her the evening before, to promise her that, if she would submit and quit her man's dress, she should be delivered out of the hands of the English and placed in those of the church. This fearful farce was enacted in the cemetery of Saint-Ouen, behind the beautifully severe monastic church so-called, and which had, by that day, assumed its present appearance. On a scaffolding raised for the purpose sat Cardinal Winchester, the two judges, and thirty-three assessors, of whom many had their scribes seated at their feet. On another scaffold, in the midst of huissiers and torturers, was Jeanne, in male attire, and also notaries to take down her confessions, and a preacher to admonish her. And, at its foot, among the crowd, was remarked a strange auditor, the executioner upon his cart, ready to bear her off as soon as she should be adjudged his. The preacher on this day, a famous doctor, Guillaume Erard, conceived himself bound on so fine an opportunity to give the reins to his eloquence, and by his zeal he spoiled all. O noble house of France, he exclaimed, which wast ever want to be protectress of the faith, how hast thou been abused to ally thyself with a heretic and schismatic? So far the accused had listened patiently, but when the preacher, turning toward her, said to her, raising his finger, It is to thee, Jeanne, that I address myself, and I tell thee that thy king is a heretic and schismatic. The admirable girl, forgetting all her danger, burst forth with, On my faith, sir, with all due respect, I undertake to tell you and to swear on pain of my life that he is the noblest Christian of all Christians, the sincerest lover of the faith and of the church, and not what you call him. Silence her, called out Cauchon. The accused adhered to what she had said. All they could obtain from her was her consent to submit herself to the Pope. Cauchon replied, The Pope is too far off. He then began to read the sentence of condemnation, which had been drawn up beforehand, and in which, among other things, it was specified. And furthermore, you have obstinately persisted in refusing to submit yourself to the Holy Father and to the Council, etc. Meanwhile, Loiselleur and Erard conjured her to have pity on herself, on which the bishop, catching at a shadow of hope, discontinued his reading. This drove the English mad, and one of Winchester's secretaries told Cauchon it was clear that he favoured the girl, a charge repeated by the cardinal's chaplain. Thou art a liar, exclaimed the bishop, and thou, visitor tort, art a traitor to the king. These grave personages seemed to be on the point of going to cuffs on the judgment seat. Erard, not discouraged, threatened, prayed. One while, he said, Jeanne, we pity you so, and another, abjure or be burned. All present evinced an interest in the matter, down even to a worthy catchpole, we see, 
who, touched with compassion, besought her to give way, assuring her that she should be taken out of the hands of the English and placed in those of the church. Well then, she said, I will sign. On this, Cauchon, turning to the cardinal, respectfully inquired what was to be done next. Admit her to do penance, replied the ecclesiastical prince. Winchester's secretary drew out of his sleeve a brief revocation, only six lines long. That which was given to the world took up six pages, and put a pen in her hand, but she could not sign. She smiled and drew a circle. The secretary took her hand and guided it to make a cross. The sentence of grace was a most severe one. Jeanne, we condemn you, out of our grace and moderation, to pass the rest of your days in prison, on the bread of grief and water of anguish, and so to mourn your sins. She was admitted by the ecclesiastical judge to do penance, no doubt nowhere save in the prisons of the church. The ecclesiastic in pace, however severe it might be, would at the least withdraw her from the hands of the English, place her under shelter from their insults, save her honor. Judge of her surprise and despair when the bishop coldly said, Take her back whence you brought her. Nothing was done. Deceived on this wise, she could not fail to retract her retraction. Yet, though she had abided by it, the English in their fury would not have allowed her to escape. They had come to Saint-Ouen in the hope of at last burning the sorceress, had waited panting and breathless to this end, and now they were being dismissed on this fashion, paid with a slip of parchment, a signature, a grimace. At the very moment the bishop discontinued reading the sentence of condemnation, stones flew upon the scaffolding without any respect for the cardinal. The doctors were in peril of their lives as they came down from their seats into the public place. Swords were in all directions pointed at their throat. The more moderate among the English confined themselves to insulting language. Priests, you are not earning the king's money. The doctors, making off in all haste, said tremblingly, Do not be uneasy, we shall soon have her again. And it was not the soldiery alone not the English mob, always so ferocious, which displayed this thirst for blood. The better-born, the great, the lords, were no less sanguinary. The king's man, his tutor, the Earl of Warwick, said like the soldiers, The king's business goes badly. The girl will not be burned. According to English notions, Warwick was the mirror of worthiness, the accomplished Englishman, the perfect gentleman. Brave and devout, like his master Henry V, and the zealous champion of the established church, he had performed the pilgrimage to the Holy Land, as well as many other chivalrous expeditions. With all his chivalry, Warwick was not the less savagely eager for the death of a woman, and one who was, too, a prisoner of war. The best and the most looked up to of the English was as little deterred by honorable scruples as the rest of his countrymen, from putting to death on the award of priests and by fire her who had humbled them by the sword. End of section 37